Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. As you drove in tonight, you likely saw the symbol of the Christian faith atop our historic church building, the cross. As you walked in through the front doors, you passed another cross. That was the original cross that was placed atop the building when it opened in the 1960s. As you walk through the foyer, there is another cross that has stood in this building since the day that it opened. Universally, for a few thousand years, the symbol of the Christian faith has been the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's a particularly unique, unusual, paradoxical, and and somewhat horrifying and shocking symbol. As one of the old hymns rightly declares, it is an emblem of suffering and shame. In the days of Jesus, you didn't speak of the cross. You didn't sing of the cross. You certainly weren't going to wear a cross as a piece of jewelry or use one to adorn your home. It was, in fact, the most shameful and painful of ways to die. The early Christians had to decide what the symbol of our faith might be. And out of all of the options, starting with what is believed to be the early church father Tertullian, it was in fact the cross. It was the cross that was chosen to represent the sum total of who Christ is and what Christ does. And tragically, oftentimes in the Christian faith, we perhaps even with good intentions say something about the cross, but very little regarding the cross. We'll say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you could die and go to heaven, all of which is true. But what we're going to do tonight, we're going to slow down. We're going to unpack the details. We're going to look at crucifixion because in the days of Jesus, they actually looked at those who were being crucified. When Jesus was a young boy, there was an uprising of Jewish citizens against the Roman state. And there was a mass execution by crucifixion. Jesus may have witnessed that as a little boy. In ancient days, Crucifixion was done openly, publicly, and shamefully. It was state-sponsored terror. The point of crucifixion was to tell anyone and everyone in the most shocking of ways, do not believe what this person believed, do not behave or the, as this person behaved, or you will endure what this person is enduring. People were crucified in public places. It was done for horror. It was done for terror. For you mothers, this would be exiting the grocery store and there was a crucified man in the parking lot. For you men, this would be entering into a sporting event and there is a crucified man near the front door. The whole point was shock and awe and horror and terror. And it was done openly and commonly and publicly. For example, I think it was in 71 AD when Spartacus fell in battle, 6,000 men were crucified publicly on a single day. They were crucified along a roughly 120 mile stretch of highway. Imagine following our service tonight, you got in your car to drive to Flagstaff and at eye level were 6,000 men, one after the other, bleeding, weeping, crying and dying in the presence of their mothers, their wives, their children, their family and their friends. Crucifixion is so horrifying that a word was literally created to explain 
what those who are being crucified are experiencing. And so the word excruciating literally means from the cross. When it comes to crucifixion, it was invented, historians believe, by the Persians about 800 years before Jesus Christ walked on the earth. They started with impaling, taking a a large wooden stake or spear, driving it through a man's body and then dropping it into a hole so that the man was in the slow, painful process of dying. It was the Persians who are believed to have invented crucifixion, but it is the Romans who perfected it. They added the crossbar. They would compete, these soldiers and executioners would, trying to determine the most painful way to cause someone to die. It was for them a sport. And it it resulted in adding the crossbar and nailing mainly men through the most sensitive nerve centers in the human body, the hands and the feet. It is most likely that people were crucified at eye level. This was so horrifying and shocking that generally speaking, when a woman was crucified, they would turn her around because even those barbarous people could not endure to see the face of a woman. People who were crucified, they experienced painfully slow death by asphyxiation. What I mean is this, as you are crucified, your body slouches on the cross, air leaves your lungs, you're struggling and straining to breathe. And so you would pass in and out of consciousness. Historians record that some people would hang on the cross for upwards of nine days. If they wanted someone to die more quickly, they would break their legs because otherwise, in an effort to extend their life, those who were being crucified as they passed in and out of consciousness, slouching, they would push themselves up on their crucified feet and pull themselves up on their crucified hands to allow air into their lungs to extend their life. Everyone knew that this was the worst possible way to die. The Jewish historian Josephus calls it, quote, the most wretched of deaths. The Roman Cicero said that decent Roman citizens should not even speak of crucifixion because it was too barbarous to even articulate. What about God's people? Well, they knew the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 says, and I quote, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, a hanged man is cursed by God. Cursed by God. God came to love us and we murdered him. The Shame on the family was so horrifying that oftentimes when someone was crucified, they were considered cursed of God and their family would disown them and not even claim the body for burial. 
There was no honor, there was no dignity, and there was to be no memory of the one who was crucified. Well, now look at the most significant crucifixion in the history of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His bloodshed begins the night before in a garden called Gethsemane, where he spends an entire night in anguish, in turmoil, praying to God the Father, wrestling through the fate that awaited him. The Bible says that he sweated like drops of blood. This is only experienced by those who are undergoing the most intense psychological, spiritual, and emotional trauma and drama. He did not sleep. He was exhausted. He was anxiety-ridden. And then Judas Iscariot, his covert disciple, his pretend friend, his betrayer, his deceiver arrived with a band of Roman soldiers and religious guards and they, they arrested Jesus in the middle of the night because it was not a trial, it was a murder. They blindfolded him, they beat him throughout the course of the night. The Bible says simply that they then took him and they had him scourged. That would have been with a cat of nine tails. The purpose of the balls at the end is to tenderize the flesh of the man. The hooks were made out of bone or metal, the goal of which was to sink deeply into the deep organs and tissue of a man's body. The man would be laid out as Arms would be affixed above his head, maybe over a post or a large stone, so that all of the man's body was exposed. And then there would be two executioners, one on each side who would whip the man across the back. The flesh would be tenderized, the hooks would dig into the deep tissue and the vital organs. It's trauma. They would then make sure that the hooks were sunk deeply and then they would rip the flesh off of the man's body. History outside of the Bible records that on occasion, it would sink so deep that a man's rib would come flying off of his body as he was still alive. Isaiah says that he would be marred beyond human likeness, meaning if you knew Jesus and saw him, you would not recognize him when they were done with him. Jesus was then forced to carry what was likely the crossbar. It was a large piece of roughly hewn timber weighing perhaps a hundred pounds. It was recycled. It had the blood and the sweat and the tears of men who had died before him. He's exhausted, he's dehydrated. He could barely likely see through his eyes that are closed from a night of beatings from a mob of angry men. There is likely blood flowing out of his nose. His lip is swollen. His ears are ringing, his body is dying. And across his bare back that is bloodied is laid a large crossbar for him to carry. Now, you may not know this, when we visited and toured Israel, where he carried the crossbar is called the Via Della Rosa. It is called that because that means the way of the cross. He was forced to carry it through narrow streets where businesses were open and people were shopping and life was ongoing. Imagine, imagine 
Next time you're at Kierland, your kids are in the splash pad and you're having a, a nice drink and maybe a chat with a friend and walking by is a bloodied, battered man carrying a cross. That's exactly the context. It's horrifying, it's shame-filled, it's public. The Bible says that Jesus fell. Those who are medical experts and have examined this event say that it is the equivalent of driving a car, being in a head-on collision at a high speed where you're thrust into the steering wheel, there's no airbag, there's no seat belt, and you have deep chest contusion and you are in the process of dying unless you receive medical attention. Jesus received a bit of help and he finally arrived at his place of crucifixion for shame. He was given a crown of thorns, mocking him as a king. They pulled out his beard, which was ultimate disrespect to a grown man in their day. They spit on him. They heaped insults upon him. They, they took this carpenter who had driven many nails on the job site with his dad and they, they drove spikes through the most sensitive nerve centers in the human body. Jesus who made the world and created trees was nailed to a hunk of wood that he created by people that he made, by people that he came to love and serve. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, likely at eye level, he sees his mother. Mothers, I know when your child was born, it was a great day and you had dreams and hopes and aspirations for the future of that child. I know that you counted the fingers and toes. Mary could not have imagined the day when her grown, healthy, godly, faithful, gifted son would be crucified. I don't know if there's anything worse than a parent being present for the death of their own child. The, the 10 fingers that she counted on the little boy, she now saw nailed to a cross. The 10 toes that she counted on a little boy, she now saw nailed to a cross. At that moment, many men sought their vengeance. They would curse, they would urinate, they would spit. And Jesus instead did ministry. Because Jesus is always concerned about other people more than himself. One of the first things that Jesus says while hanging on the cross is, Father, forgive them. Jesus is praying for his enemies. 
and he is going to die to answer his own prayer so that forgiveness could be made possible. At the cross, not only do we see the extraordinary goodness of God, we also see the inexcusable evil of mankind. Those who were present did not want to hear Jesus pray for them and minister to others. The Bible records that they, they took a long stick that had a sponge on the end, they sopped it in wine vinegar, and they shoved it in his mouth. It is likely that that sponge was part of the field kit for Roman soldiers. When you were deployed into battle, you needed to go to the restroom you would go wherever you found yourself and to cleanse yourself, you would take out your sponge, you would sop it in wine vinegar as a disinfectant, and then you would put it on the end of a stick and you would cleanse yourself. It is likely that that is the sponge that was shoved into the mouth of Jesus to demand that he stop praying for people, to demand that he not forgive people, to demand that he cease ministering to people. With the taste likely of a Roman soldier's bowel movement on his lips, Jesus then quotes the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus then finishes his work. All religions who tell you that you need to do something to be right with God are lying. Good works do not save. Reincarnation does not save. You do not simply die and go to a better place. Baptism does not save. Jesus said from the cross in a loud and triumphant voice, it is finished. And the work was done. The truth is that something needed to be done. And it's nothing that you have done. It is all that he has done. And Jesus died to ensure he was dead, an executioner took a spear, ran it through his side, it punctured his hard sack so that water and blood flowed from his side. Jesus Christ died on the cross. The question is, why do we call this good news? Christians have always called the cross of Jesus the good news. We're here on what is called Good Friday. How could the worst thing done to the best person be good? The Bible from beginning to end uses a little word with big implications. It is the word for. 
And it tells us that Jesus died, that's the historical fact. And then using the word for, it then tells us why it is good news for us. I'll give you just a few examples from the word of God. Isaiah 53, five, written 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The apostle Paul writes in Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. First Corinthians 15.3 in the shortest summary of the gospel in the New Testament, Christ died for our sins. And his lead disciple Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the, the righteous for the unrighteous. Theologians use a word to articulate and summarize and synthesize all of this. It is the word substitution. That Jesus Christ on the cross substituted himself for us. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Two things happened on the cross. Number one, Jesus took your place and if you believe in him and belong to him, he put you in his place. He endured what you should endure and you enjoy what you should not enjoy. All of this is to deal with sin. We live in a world that does not talk about sin. You have many problems. You have financial problems. You have relational problems. You have physical problems, you have emotional problems. Let me tell you, your greatest problem is your sin problem. Until you deal with that problem, you are incapable and ill-prepared of dealing with any other problem. Sin is the problem, Jesus is the solution. And here's what always happens. We're not that bad, God's not that holy, the cross wasn't that necessary. Let me tell you, you are worse than not only you think you are, you are worse than you can think you are. Not only is Jesus better than you think he is, Jesus is better than you can think that he is. So let me explain sin. Some of you understand this, some of you do not. Sin includes commission, where you do something you should not do. Sin includes omission, where you were supposed to love and you didn't love, you were supposed to serve and you didn't serve, you were supposed to give and you didn't give, you were supposed to tell the truth and you did not tell the truth. Sin is commission and omission. Sin includes your thoughts, God knows your thoughts. Sin includes your words. God hears every word. Sin includes your deeds. God sees all of your deeds. And sin includes the motives because God knows your heart. When the Bible says, who could say 
I am clean and holy and pure and I've kept myself without sin. Well, the rhetorical answer is no one. Even those who are non-Christians will acknowledge this saying that no one is perfect. Well, one is, and we murdered him, which proves how imperfect we are. Sin is both a condition and an action. Sin is not just what you do. Sin is, my friend, who you are and what you are. You cannot change your behavior. God must first change your very nature. Sin is by definition law-breaking. This is the word of God. It is filled with the laws of God. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is criminal. Sin is inexcusable. It is law-breaking. And it comes from this, an unwillingness of a stubborn heart to accept any authority beyond oneself. Some of you do not acknowledge the authority of God or of God's word. You want to live an autonomous, independent life. You want to de-God God. You want to be your own God. You want to render a verdict over your own life. You want to declare and decree your own morality. All of this is rooted in pride. The reason that Satan and demons were cast out of heaven was because of pride. Today we have parades for things we should have funerals for. We have pride in things we should be ashamed of. We want to be loved for what we do rather than loving God and changing what we do. Pride is demonic. Every bumper sticker is satanic. Jesus is humble. That's the way of God. I'm gonna tell you something that maybe you've never heard. I'm gonna tell you a number of things that you may have never considered. You're not a good person. The world is not better off with you. You don't have a good heart. The biggest enemy in your life is you. The biggest problem you have is you. You can stop blaming your parents. You can stop blaming your politicians. You can stop blaming your genetics. You can stop blaming your culture. You can stop blaming your upbringing. At the end of the day, you are responsible before God for you. You are not the solution. You are the problem. Jesus Christ came to save from Satan, sin, death, hell, the wrath of God, and to save you from you. You're the greatest enemy you have. 
If you are the enemy, who is going to save you from you? If you are the problem, the solution cannot be you. We're not evolving and getting better. Education will not fix this problem. Economic equality will not fix this problem. Social justice will not fix this problem. This is not only your problem, this is the problem of all humanity. It is the problem of sin. And only Jesus is the solution to that problem, is the victory over that enemy. The good news is that Jesus Christ died for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. And some of you might say, I am a good person. I am a moral person. I have lived a good life. What I would tell you, you are the worst sinner of all because you are arrogant, you are proud, you are self-righteous. And you are lying to yourself. Let me just say this, the most powerful voice speaking into your life is your voice. And if you don't echo the word of God and what God says about you, you won't even come to a right understanding of who you are because God knows you better than you know you. I wanna, I wanna pound like a nail nine things that Jesus did on the cross. This is not the exhaustive list, but I hope it is a sufficient list. Number one, Jesus died so that you can live. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, when you were dead in your sins, and this is you, and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. God is the living God. Sin is separating ourselves from the source of life. Sin brings spiritual death. You are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. You need to be born again, spiritually made anew through Jesus Christ. In addition, we are all experiencing the process of physical death. Just as if you unplug technology from a power source, eventually the battery winds down, so your soul is made by God, is powered by God. And if you do not repent of sin and receive Jesus, you do not have the source of spiritual life. And as a result, you begin the process of physical death. Here's what I'm saying. Some of you are far more concerned about your phone than your soul. Jesus died so that you can live. You can live spiritually starting today. And then one day when you die, you will conquer death because Jesus conquered death and you will live forever in the presence of God. Number two, Jesus paid the ultimate price for your debt to God. 
1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. Your life apart from Christ is empty. And the truth is apart from Christ, you'll be like your mother, you'll be like your father. The hollow and empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Every time you sin, you accrue a debt to God. Each month, your debtors send you a record of debt. Your mortgage payment, your college loans, your credit cards, your car payment. In the presence of God, there is an account with your name on it. Every time you sin, you accrue a debt to God. Imagine how significant that debt is. Thought, word, deed, motive, omission, commission. One of two things happen. You die and you go to hell and you pay your debt. Hell is a debtor's prison. Or Jesus, who never sinned and had no debt, substitutes himself on the cross and pays the totality of your debt. That's exactly what Peter is saying. That the debt and the record of debt, your record of debt to God because of your sin was nailed to the cross of Jesus. All of your sin, past, present, and future, if you believe in Jesus and belong to Jesus, was paid for in full by Jesus. What this means is, friend, when you are suffering, God is not punishing you. He already punished Jesus. Number three, Jesus was cursed so you could be blessed. Galatians 3.13, he quotes Deuteronomy 21. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he quotes Deuteronomy, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. God cannot bless sin. Sin is contrary to the character of God. And so what God must do is curse sin. He cannot bless sin. If he blesses sin, then God becomes as evil as we are. And so what God does, God curses sin. Now the problem is you and I are sinners, so we are cursed. And Jesus on the cross took your place and he was cursed and he put you in his place so you could be blessed. Number four, Jesus became unrighteous so you could become righteous. Just thinking about it. Do you know that the most popular fashion statement in our day is what? The cross. Oftentimes worn by half-naked people who hate Jesus and don't understand the love of God. Jesus became unrighteous so you could become righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's one of my favorite scriptures. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus went to the cross and when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took upon himself your sin. And in that moment, he gave you his perfection, his righteousness. There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. There's there's nothing that you can do to make yourself righteous. That's why sinners in our day just want us to celebrate them because they don't understand the possibility of God forgiving and changing them. If you belong to Jesus Christ, the full righteousness of Jesus Christ was granted, given, accredited, reckoned to you on the cross. Number six, Jesus was rejected by the Father so that you could be reconciled to the Father. Romans 5, 10 and 11, for if when we were God's what? What's it say? Enemies. You need to know that apart from Jesus, you are an enemy of God. He made the planet. Look what we've done to it. He made human life. Look how we've treated each other. He made you to reflect him. Look at what a disappointment you are. It's amazing to me. Enemies. Enemies. We were God's enemies, but we were reconciled. Some of you say, I don't believe that. I don't like that. Let me ask you this. How many enemies have you died for? How many enemies have you blessed? How many enemies have you pursued? How many enemies have you adopted? We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Sin against God is relational betrayal. How many of you have been betrayed relationally? Someone that you loved betrayed you. Someone that you trusted betrayed you. Someone that you were committed to betrayed you. God feels like that about every human being who will ever set foot on planet earth. God has been betrayed by everyone. And as a result, God has enemies. Not that God is bad, but because we have declared war on him. We have made ourselves his enemies through sin. And Jesus comes. And when he says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was rejected so you could be reconciled. Not only did he take your place, he puts you in his place. Number seven, Jesus was shamed so you could be unashamed. 
Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Let me tell you this. The key to life is not looking inwardly to yourself. It's looking outwardly to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, you need to know this. Loving you was joy for Jesus. Saving you was joy for Jesus. Forgiving you was joy for Jesus. Coming for you was joy for Jesus. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross scorning or despising its shame. Sin is shameful. It's shameful. If you have a functioning conscience, you know that you're shameful. If you, if you have no shame in your life, there is something profoundly broken in you. If you're not embarrassed by things you've said and done, if you don't regret ways you have behaved, if you don't have remorse over the way you have treated others, if you experience no shame, there is something broken in your soul. If, let me just say this. If you feel no shame, you should be ashamed of yourself. So what do we do with that shame? We give it to Jesus because shame comes where there is sin. And when Jesus takes the sin, he also takes the shame. So here's what I need you to know. If Jesus has forgiven you, you are forgiven. If Jesus has taken the shame off of you, you wearing it is not helpful. It is not honoring and it is not godly. You do not need to punish yourself if Jesus was punished. You do not need to shame yourself if Jesus was shamed. Some of you are forgiven, but still bearing and wearing the shame. Jesus not only wants your sin, he wants your shame. I don't care what Satan has put on you. I don't care what your behavior has put on you. I don't care what others have put on you. I am telling you that Jesus takes it off of you. Number eight, Jesus became unclean to make you clean. First John 1, seven through nine, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's lifestyle and friendship. One of the great themes of the Bible in relationship to God is walking with God. One of my favorite things to do with my wife, Grace, is to go for a walk and hold her hand. Jesus wants to go for a walk with you and he wants to hold your hand every day of your life and walk with you into eternity. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's honesty, integrity, covert, humility, or rather overt, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from how much of our sin? All of it, all of it. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Let me just tell you this. Sinners are keenly aware of other people's sin and not their own. Sinners are keenly aware of institutional sin and not personal sin. They will picket and protest people and groups and not look in the mirror and start with their biggest problem. If you're going to have moral outrage, start with the person whose face is on your driver's license. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm sure I'm fine. I believe in God. I, 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 I think Christians are a little too intense, especially that guy at the Trinity Church. <laughs> if we confess, that's to agree with God, our sins, he is, he is faithful and just. You don't have anybody like that. Even the people who love you the most are gonna fail you on occasion, not this Jesus. Forgive us our sins. Purify us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. When we sin, we make ourselves defiled, unclean, filthy, dirty. When other people sin against us, they make us feel defiled, unclean, filthy, dirty. Two things come to mind. Uh, many years ago, I was dealing with a young woman who had a very reckless, very rebellious, very devastating lifestyle. I asked her, I said, why do you do this? She said, I'm a dirty girl, so I do dirty things. I said, who told you that? It was a male relative. If you belong to Jesus, it doesn't matter what you've done and it doesn't matter what others have done. You're not dirty. You're clean. Grace and I have had the honor of doing ministry together for more than 20 years. Um, Grace was very brave to share some of her story publicly about uh, being an assault victim before we met. We didn't discover this until years in our marriage. And God has opened up an opportunity because of her bravery to minister to people who have been abused. Every victim of abuse that we have ever met with tells us that they did something once they were abused. Do you know what that is? They took a shower. Why? They feel defiled. They feel unclean. They feel dirty. The problem is water can't get to the soul. Only Jesus can get to the soul. We all have things in our life that we have said and done that make us feel defiled unclean, filthy, and dirty. Many, if not most of us, have things that others have done to us that make us feel dirty, defiled, unclean. What Jesus does, he not only 
forgives sin. He also cleanses from all, whether you did it or they did it or you both did it, unrighteousness. On the cross, Jesus became unclean to make you clean. That's why oftentimes in the Bible, there's a particular color that God's people wear. What is it? It's white. It's why you ladies, even if you've done some things that make you feel unworthy on your wedding day, if you belong to Jesus, what color do you get to wear? White. 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 Because Jesus was made unclean so that you could be made clean. Lastly, number nine, Jesus was hated so you could be loved. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because God is good, when God sees sin, he cannot love sin. He has to hate it. Some of you will say, but God, God, God loves the sinner and he hates the sin. The non-Christian Hindu, Mahatma Gandhi said that. He also said that he believed that the cross accomplished nothing. God hates sin. What if sin is not just what you do, it is who you are? What if if like a stain in a shirt, it has become so deep that it is now part of the shirt? What if sin is so ingrained in your nature, in your desires, in your heart, and in your mind, that you are sin. On the cross, Jesus took your sin and he experienced hatred from the mob. He experienced hatred from his executioners. He experienced hatred from the religious leaders. He experienced hatred from the demonic realm and he certainly endured the wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to experience that, that instead you could be loved. One of the most offensive things I hear from negligent Bible teachers is, let's not talk about sin, let's not talk about the cross, let's not talk about wrath, let's not talk about death, let's just talk about God's love. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no love of God apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no love of God apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. (laughs) 
I want you all to pray that prayer. God is a father who sent his son. In God's providence, we hear a son crying out to their father. Jesus is the son of God who cried out to the father. And he sends the spirit to live in your heart so that by the spirit, you will cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. That's a prophetic child. This is the good news. The good news is that Jesus took your place and put you in his place. On Sunday, if you come back, (laughs) the funeral will be over and the party will begin. But let me make it clear. There are only two kinds of people in the room. There are only two kinds of people online. There are only two kinds of people on the earth. There are only two kinds of people in the history of the world. Those who believe in Christ and those who do not believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ and you do not believe in Christ, let me just tell you that that is the most significant difference that is possible. If you do not know Christ, let me just be clear with you. I love you. I believe that we take ourselves way too seriously. We take God way too lightly. My hope tonight is to take God seriously. I believe that if all I ever give you are soft words, you'll be hard people, hard-hearted toward God and your sin and the word of God and the cross of Jesus. I want the hard words to cause you to have a a soft heart toward God and a a tender heart toward your sin and a tender heart toward other sinners and a tender heart toward the word of God. My job though is to tell the truth and your job is to make the most important decision you will ever make. And that is, do you believe in the cross of Christ? If you do not, all that awaits you is death. Every moment you are accruing a debt to God. You are cursed. You are unrighteous. God's wrath is awaiting you. Upon death, you will be forever rejected by God. You should be ashamed because you are unclean and you hate God. If you believe in the cross of Christ and the Christ of the cross, you're spiritually alive today and upon death you'll experience eternal life. You are forgiven. God has nothing for you but blessing. He looks at you through the finished work of Christ 
and he declares you to be righteous. Grace is what he has for you because you have been reconciled to your father through the payment and penalty of his only begotten son. No matter what you have done or what has been done to you, you can be unashamed because in Christ you are clean and you are loved. My job is to tell you the good news. Your job is to make a choice. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.